Good evening. Friends in Christ, if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 41 through 52 this evening. I mentioned last week that I like to ease out of Christmas. Uh, Sometimes I'm reluctant to put away our Christmas decorations, and I'll inform you tonight that our halls have been de-decked. We have put away the Christmas tree, even though I was trying to hold on to it. Um, But I am going to hold on to the opening chapters of Luke just a little bit longer. Uh, Luke gives us a lot of detail about the birth of Jesus. And then he eases us out of the Christmas story with an account of Jesus being taken to the temple by Mary and Joseph uh, when he's a a very young child. And then we leave Jesus' infancy. But before going into his adulthood and the beginning of his earthly public ministry, uh, we see this brief story of Jesus' boyhood when he is 12 years old and goes to the temple with his parents again. Now, Jesus' boyhood has been a source of fascination for centuries. Um, Gnostic writers have tried to uh, write about, make-believe stories about Jesus' boyhood, and maybe you've heard some of those fantastic, ridiculous stories Uh, A lot of them are about Jesus essentially doing party tricks uh, with his miracles. But we can understand the interest, but the interest in Jesus' boyhood, that time in his life, it should drive us not into our imaginations, but it should drive us into what God has revealed to us. Uh, We should read this account in Luke with wonder because of all the things that God wants us to know about this period in Jesus' life, it's presented for us here in Luke chapter 2. This is what God wants us to know about this time in Jesus's life. Well, before we give our attention to it, let's pray together. Lord, the psalmist says, your statutes have been my songs. And so, Lord, would you give us a love for your word so much that they become our song? Lord, let us love to be instructed by your word, even corrected by your word. And would we love our great salvation and our wonderful Savior as a result of giving our attention to your word this evening. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. This is the word of the Lord. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom 
and in stature and in favor with God and man. As far as the reading of God's word may add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, how do you measure the growth of your children? Maybe it's by pen marks on a door frame with the date and their name on it. Uh, maybe you do it when you go to the pediatrician and they pull out the iPad or whatever it is and it's got the growth chart, their height and weight on it. Maybe it's snuggling up on the couch and looking at old pictures and you say things like, look how much you've grown. Or maybe it's just the clothes that just keep shrinking. There are a lot of ways to measure the growth of children. Luke gives us a kind of growth chart for Jesus in the opening chapters of his gospel account. And he does this, we can especially see it with the things that he calls Jesus. And you can see it down to the Greek words that are used. Jesus in chapter 2 is a baby, a brephos. The shepherds come to see the baby lying in the manger in Luke 2.16. By the way, I think it's worth pointing out that that same word is used when talking about John the Baptist when he's in the womb. John the Baptist is a baby in the womb. Uh, and it's an important point in our day. Jesus was a baby. Jesus was also a child, a paideon. When Simeon holds him in Luke 2, 27, and I suppose you could still call a two-month-old a baby, and they probably did, but we should notice at this point that Jesus is growing. He's no longer a newborn. And then by the time we're here in our passage this evening, he is a pice, a young man, a boy who's not yet an adult. He's going to be entering his teen years and then into manhood. These are the words that would be used about any person. Jesus is growing up. He's learning. His body and mind are growing stronger, verse 52 says. And all the while, he's being instructed by the word, the, the complete Old Testament, by his parents and ultimately by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in Luke 2.40, after Jesus was taken to the temple by Mary and Joseph, uh, which we read about uh, last week, Luke gives a summary statement of Jesus' childhood. Luke 2, verse 40, look there with me. It says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Well, it's as if we look at the next, uh, we look at that uh, sentence and say, well, could you give me an example, Luke? of Jesus growing in wisdom. And he says, well, sure. And here's our passage this evening. We're going to see several important things in this passage. First, the setting in which Jesus stays behind. Second, we'll see Jesus's understanding. He has a depth of understanding from the Word and the Spirit. And yet, at the same time, the Lord Jesus is humble. Third, we'll see Jesus's identity. Jesus understood himself to be who he was, the very Son of God and that he had to be in his father's house. And then fourth, see Jesus growing. Jesus, throughout his life, throughout his young life, submitted to his parents and matured as a true human. And my hope as we look at this passage is that we would marvel at the Lord Jesus, that we, like the people in this story, would be astonished by him, that we would be amazed as Mary and Joseph were. Well, look with me at verse 41 and see first the setting here in which Jesus stays behind. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. 
our story starts and we're dropped in on this annual pilgrimage. It's, it's part hike, part camping trip, culminating in a worship service. And the whole family is involved. Uh, Joseph, Mary, Jesus, and perhaps even young children, uh, Joseph and Mary's natural children, uh, Jesus' brothers like James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon, perhaps they are in tow as well. And they're not the only ones. There's something of a caravan of families that traveled from the Nazareth area to Jerusalem. And it's a big hike. On the map in your Bible, if you look there, Nazareth is 60 miles directly north of Jerusalem. But if you look at a map, you'll see lots of bumps on that map. It's through the mountains that they have to travel. And so it's even even longer than 60 miles. It would have been difficult. But traveling with family and with your fellow believers would have been joyous and memorable. A later account of this kind of travel says that uh, women would have traveled in the front with younger children, and that men would have traveled behind with the young men among them. It's a long journey, uh, but the family is going to worship together. And, and we should notice right here, Doesn't this press our commitment to public worship? Aren't we thankful for the means of grace that God has given us in the new covenant and that they're so much simpler than the means of grace in the old covenant? Our worship is weekly and it's always local. No annual pilgrimage anywhere else needed. And it's simpler in many other ways. No animal sacrifices because Jesus was the final sacrifice for us. None of the many other ceremonies. We've been liberated from that law, that ceremonial law through Jesus. Our means of grace are so much simpler. Coming and sitting under the word, uh, partaking of the sacrament, praying together. And yet, brothers and sisters, how many won't do it? How many will not come to church with regularity? Now, some can't because of health reasons, but some call themselves Christians and just won't. There are those who think, well, I have a Bible. What do I need church for? But those who think that aren't reading the Bible, at least not passages like Hebrews 10, 24, when it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And not to mention all of Paul's instructions, especially to Timothy and Titus about the qualifications for officers in the church, the need for the people of the church to be strengthened and edified. Or Paul's explanation to the Corinthians that someone who is in terrible, unrepentant sin needs to be formally put out of the church. How are you formally put out of the church if you're never formally put into the church, becoming a member of the church? But all of these things, church membership, uh, coming to worship weekly and, uh, and honoring the Lord with the saints, this is commanded of us in Scripture. It's not, that church wor- it's not that church membership and corporate worship automatically mean you're a Christian. Uh, it's, you, you can do all kinds of things with a cold heart. But these things are essential to our faith. They, they, they are the means that the Lord has given us to grow our faith. We, we see here, just at the very beginning of this story, the priority of the Christian worshiping. 
and especially the family, worshiping together. Uh, Once a year, the whole family would go to this feast. It's hard to get all the kids loaded up in the van and drive 10 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe even an hour to public worship. Uh, Mary and Joseph were on a days-long camping trip one way, and yet they knew that they were called to raise up their children in the way they should go, in the love of the Lord and the fellowship with His people. Brothers and sisters, do we love corporate worship? Uh, Parents, are you checking with your kids about their attitudes and their understanding of worship? Are you helping them not just to get here, but to love being here. You do this by praying for them. You also do this by loving worship yourself, ultimately by loving the Lord yourself. Brothers and sisters, are you doing family worship throughout the week? Are you gathering together and reading the scriptures and praying, even if only for a few minutes? Are you having spiritual conversations with your children, parents with grown kids who are out of the house, maybe with kids of their own, are you praying for them that they would value worship? If you're here and you're single, are you preparing yourself for the day that, Lord willing, you would have such an opportunity? Well, friends, we see in Joseph and Mary a worshiping family, a family that loves and is devoted to the Lord. They went to Jerusalem, participated in the feast, certainly with worship in their heart and with great joy, And then it's time to head back home. Just an ordinary Passover trip, right? No, not at all. Verse 43, uh, something very strange happens. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, some wonder, how could Jesus leave them? A better question is, how could they lose him? Of all your kids, <laughs> the scriptures don't imply that Joseph and Mary were negligent. Uh, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for leaving him, and Luke seems to treat this as a totally honest mistake. It's, and it's easy to see how it could have been. They're traveling, verse 44, among relatives and acquaintances. This is as safe a group of people as you're going to find. Uh, Maybe Mary is tending to other business. Joseph is busy with the other men, maybe tending to the responsibilities of their travel, setting up camp and that sort of thing. It's a natural thing for Joseph and Mary to assume that Jesus is with a relative. Mary and Joseph come to the tent at the end of the day, uh, maybe watching the things that are going on at the end of the day, and they look at each other and say, where's Jesus? And in the long history of parents saying, I thought he was with you. Is this the worst? Is this the most high stakes ever? Well, they return to Jerusalem. And the word in verse 48 is very understandably in distress. Imagine how Mary and Joseph felt. Three days total. Uh, So it's a long journey back. They've already traveled one day. And so they have to travel one day back and then one day spent in Jerusalem searching for Jesus. And during that time, what are they feeling? Are they fearful? Do they feel guilty? Now, Mary and Joseph are a faithful couple. They trust the Lord. 
And likely from the moment they realize that they've lost him, they don't immediately forget all the promises that God has made about Jesus. They're probably praying together and trusting the Lord that he is in good hands. In fact, doesn't this hint to another time in the future when Mary will lose Jesus for three days? only for him to reveal himself on the third. Except that then her trust in the Lord must be profound because she loses Jesus to the grave after he has faced our hell on the cross. And yet Jesus is raised up on the third day to her relief and to to hers and to our eternal joy. Well, Mary and Joseph ultimately trust the Lord, but that doesn't relieve this very practical, intense distress that they feel But in verse 46, praise the Lord, they find him. And so we see here in verses 46 through 48, Jesus' understanding of himself. Look with me at verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they found Jesus, it was not a dramatic reunion like you might imagine in a movie. Jesus wasn't frantically looking for them, and he sees them across a crowd, frazzled, disheveled after three days without him. They don't run from their different directions to embrace each other. Jesus is with the teachers, and at first he doesn't even seem to notice them. Throughout this time, these three days, he's been cared for by the Lord perhaps very practically by staying with one of the teachers until his parents came back for him. When Mary and Joseph find Jesus, he's not cold toward them. He's in the middle of something. They come into the temple courts and he's sitting among the teachers, listening and asking them questions. And in this act, Jesus displays an understanding that amazes everyone listening to him. Notice here that Jesus isn't explicitly teaching. He hasn't come in and taken over the room. Jesus is humble. He's a 12-year-old. He is patiently and submissively listening to the teachers. He's acting his age, but he's incredibly wise for his age. He's asking questions that show a grasp on the word, and he's answering questions that astound the people who are present. Dale Ralph Davis says Jesus is the one with the audience. He's not teaching, but he's the one whose comments everyone is listening for. Now, this, of course, foreshadows Jesus' teaching ministry to come. What are people going to say about Jesus when they hear him in his public ministry? No one ever spoke like he did. They'll say that he taught with authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He will leave the professionals speechless, searching for words, and they can't answer him. So Jesus has understanding. What what did Jesus then understand? What was it that he understood? Well, Jesus understood the scriptures. He knew the word of God. He knew the Old Testament. He had, verse 47, understanding, meaning Jesus could take the scriptures and apply them. He can take one text and show how it interacts with other texts. He can trace themes through Scripture. Jesus understood. He had insight. 
And they could tell by the questions that, they, that he asked. It doesn't say that they were impressed by him. They were amazed by him. Jesus had understanding. He also was able to answer them. And we should pay especially close attention to this, especially in our day of relativism and my truth and your truth. Brothers and sisters, the Bible has answers. Christians are not relativists. We don't believe truth is whatever you feel. You can understand God, yourself, and the world from the Bible. You can counsel others from the Scriptures. This is not... Mary and Joseph don't walk into a room where Jesus, along with a bunch of people, are tossing around 20 different interpretations that are all equally valuable. No. Scripture is clear. It says something to us. And Jesus understands. Now here's a question. Where did Jesus' understanding come from? When Jesus was born, did he already know everything? Did he come preloaded with all of the answers? And Jesus in this moment is just holding back. Well, Jesus' understanding came from the Word of God and from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was fully human. He's fully God, and he took on humanity, not losing any of what it meant for him to be God. But Jesus took on true humanity, which means that Jesus had a truly human mind that could grow in wisdom, as verse 52 says. Jesus' mind did not come preloaded with everything that he would later know. That's not the way our minds are. Jesus had to learn the way that any human has to learn, which is through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit. Jesus learned the way that the prophets did by receiving a word from the Lord. Jesus grew in wisdom. Jesus learned the scriptures from the synagogue services, from Mary and Joseph. Jesus learned to read and then read the word himself. And throughout that time, the Holy Spirit communicated to Jesus, as he did with the prophets before, what God said. The Holy Spirit is so important in this. Mark Jones calls the Holy Spirit Jesus' inseparable companion. It's, it's why we can say uh, that Jesus, according to his divinity, is omniscient, and according to his humanity, had to increase in wisdom. The, and the Holy Spirit did not reveal everything to Jesus all at once, which makes sense, by the way, of passages later, like in Matthew 24, verse 36, when Jesus says that he does not know the day or the hour of the last day. Now, we have to be careful when we talk about this because we're talking about a profound mystery that we can barely wrap our heads around. Jesus didn't have a split personality. It's not that he has a God side and a man side. He's not two persons somehow within one body. He is one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. But his deity doesn't overwhelm his humanity. Jesus really is God. And he didn't give up a single attribute. Jesus is everywhere present and all-knowing, and yet 2,000 years ago, he was a 12-year-old boy who knew some things and yet 
had to learn other things. He was without sin, and he was growing in understanding by the Word and the Spirit. And this is a great mystery. It should stagger your minds. It stretches our ability to understand. It should intellectually humble us. How do we even get our heads around this? What do we do with this? Well, you do what the people listening to Jesus with all the teachers did. You just be amazed by Him. What an amazing Savior we have. Doesn't it humble you that what Jesus did in coming as a man was so great that you can't fully wrap your mind around it? It should hurt your head a little bit to think about this kind of thing. It should make us put our hands over our mouths like Job did in awe of God. It should make us respond uh, like Mary did to the angel. How can this be? But I am trusting in you, Lord. Friends, are you in awe of Jesus? Do you love him as your best friend and pour out your soul to him? And at the same time, tremble before his awesome power. As you read scripture and as you pray this year, will you commit to learning more of Christ, to seeking to know him more, to be amazed by him? This is how we are to react to Jesus. We are to be astonished by him. We'll see in verse 48 how Mary and Joseph react to him. It says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. What would you say about Mary and Joseph's reaction here? It's a mixed reaction, isn't it? They're, they're astonished, they're amazed, but they're also perplexed. Why has Jesus done this? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Mary doesn't ask, why have you disobeyed us, son? She doesn't, include, she doesn't accuse Jesus of any sin. Some people have misunderstood verse 51 when it says that Jesus returned home and was submissive to them. It's not implying that Jesus had ever been unsubmissive before or that he's unsubmissive to them in this story. It's only emphasizing that Jesus continued to be submissive to them as he always was. Mary, and Luke emphasizes her reaction, is confused. How could Jesus do something that caused them such grief? Well, Jesus answers in verse 49. And here, in verses 49 through 50, see Jesus' identity. Jesus said to them, verse 49, two questions. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? What an incredible thing to say. With that first question, Jesus isn't cold. He's not angry. He's not being rude. He's being patient with Mary and Joseph's ignorance. Jesus is gently saying, in some ways, you should have known better. Mary and Joseph heard the testimony of Gabriel. Mary heard the testimony of Elizabeth and of the angels through the shepherds, and of Simeon, and of the wise men, who this child is. And Jesus isn't standing there condemning or being condescending with Joseph and Mary. It's just a fact. And Luke agrees in verse 50, they didn't understand. They didn't get it. 
that while Jesus has obligations and allegiances to his parents, he has a higher allegiance and a higher obligation to God, his Father. And with the second question that Jesus asks them, he reveals his identity. Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Jesus is showing that he understands himself as the unique Son of God. He is man, and yet he is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. David Gooding points out that no one said the kind of thing that Jesus says here. And this is what he says about it. He says, Moses, who built the tabernacle, and David, who longed to build the temple, and Solomon, who actually built the temple, And no one else who ever ministered in the tabernacle or the temple would have called that place my father's house. The child, Jesus, was conscious of a relationship with God that none had conceived of, let alone expressed before. Why did Jesus talk this way? Because Jesus is God in flesh. The temple was made for the worship of God. And Jesus is in his father's house. The book of Hebrews says that the temple, the earthly temple, was just a copy of heavenly things. It's a place for earthly worship that's pointed toward the place and is meant to remind people of the place of heavenly worship where God uh, dwells and the angels and the departed saints worship him. It's the place that Jesus left to come to earth. When Jesus calls this place his father's house, he's not being casual. Jesus has a claim to the temple. In building a temple for God, as the people did, they were building a temple for Jesus. Now Jesus is going to go even further later, and he'll say, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. People were amazed by that because they were like, it took a long time to build that temple. And Jesus says, uh, or the gospel writer says about Jesus, that he was speaking of his body. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. How glorious is he? One more thing here. Notice the use of the word father in this account. In verse 48, Mary said, your father, Joseph, and I have been searching for you. And how does Jesus respond? I had to be in my father, the Lord's house. Now, in saying this, Jesus means no disrespect to Joseph. Jesus is not denigrating Joseph at all. Jesus always perfectly honored Joseph. What Jesus is doing is exalting his relationship with God the Father. And John, in his gospel, he really emphasizes what Jesus had to say about his relationship with the Father. I'll just give you a couple of these really quick. Jesus says that he speaks only as his Father taught him. Jesus says that the Father has given his people into Je- to Jesus, and yet they're still in the Father's hands. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus says that the Father consecrated him and sent him into the world. Jesus said that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. When Jesus dies, he says he will go to his Father. And then after his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus says that he will ascend to his Father. This is who Jesus is. 
He is the second person of the Trinity. But then look at verse 50. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Part of Jesus' earthly suffering was that people didn't understand him. It's not the worst part of Jesus' suffering, but it is a real part of his suffering. The loneliness, the isolation. Has anybody ever just not gotten you? Doesn't that hurt? Jesus, uh, Jesus experienced isolation and loneliness as he accomplished our redemption. His parents knew that he never sinned against him, but they didn't always understand him. His brothers, before he died and rose again, didn't believe him. His disciples regularly did not understand what he was saying. Peter rebuked him. John and James wanted to be seated on either side of his throne. Why did they even think that was something that they could ask for? They, the disciples, lose their minds when Jesus is asleep in the boat and the storm is raging. They go so far as to ask Jesus, don't you care about us? They're wondering why Jesus is sleeping and yet none of them could stay motivated to stay awake and pray with Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane in such anguish of soul that his sweat was like bloody drops. Judas apostatized and betrayed him. Peter publicly denied him. All the disciples deserted him for his darkest hour on the cross, except for John. All that rejection. And Jesus died for them. Every one of them, except for Judas who would not repent. Jesus died to save Mary and Joseph and his brothers who would believe later and his disciples who sinned against him and who shamed him And Jesus died for every one of us who have failed Him in so many ways if we come to Him in repentance. Friends, He can redeem you. Do you rejoice in your Savior who left heaven, His Father's house. He didn't leave the copy of the thing. He left the real place to live among us. Oh, how much Jesus sacrificed for us. How much He suffered. How costly was our redemption? If you think, yes, Jesus went through a lot, but he was God, so it must have been easy, you're wrong. He was humiliated so that you might be justified and sanctified and finally glorified. Friends, don't you want to know him more? Do you look at Christ the way that you might turn a jewel in your hand to appreciate the different angles, the measureless beauty. You do that by reading the Word. You stare at Christ by coming to the Word that He has given us, by hearing it preached, and by seeing His message displayed in the broken bread and the poured wine. Friends, do you marvel at the God-man? Well, Joseph and Mary return home. With Jesus. And this brings us to our final, very brief point. Fourthly, we see Jesus growing in verses 51 and 52. 51 says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So much of this was still a mystery to Joseph and Mary, and yet they sought to be godly parents who had raised their son. In the Lord. They were not perfect, and their son was. He never sinned, and yet he was submissive 
to them. What profound humility of Jesus to submit himself, to be born under the law and to live under a house, to live under the roof of Joseph and Mary. He was an obedient son. And Luke ends this section by giving us a summary statement of his growth to manhood. Verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Just talk about those four things very briefly. Jesus, eternal God, submitted himself to childhood and he grew up. Again, with wisdom, he increased in wisdom. Luke wants us to see that Jesus had a human mind and he grew in wisdom the way that humans do by learning the word, by the help of the Holy Spirit and by applying that word to our lives. Jesus increased in stature. Jesus' body grew and strengthened. His mental and physical capacities developed and grew. And, And with the Spirit's help, Jesus was able to hold the truth of God in his head and answer the most venomous Pharisees, the most astute lawyer, and even the devil himself with the right word at the right time. And his body grew so that he would have just enough strength to walk long journeys teaching and healing, to fast for 40 days in the wilderness, and then one day to bear lashes on that body and punches from Roman soldiers and a crown of thorns pressed down on his head and a heavy cross laid on his back all the way up Calvary's hill. Jesus' body increased in stature, grew in strength so that he could die for you. He increased with fa- in favor with God. Now, God was never displeased with him. But every day, with every act of obedience, Jesus was accomplishing his mission. He was fulfilling all righteousness. He was doing the the works of the law, doing the will of the Lord to glorify his Father and to save you. So that when he died on the cross, he died as a perfect Savior who could truly say, it is finished. And then finally, he increased in favor with man. People saw that he was good and that he did good. And like Mary and Joseph, they probably did not understand it most of the time. But Jesus was good and had favor with men so that when he was crucified, men had no choice but to lie about him in order to get him sentenced to death, to slander him, to make up devilish falsehoods. Jesus was and is the best man given over to men in order to save us. Well, let me conclude by, this is for all of us, but I want to direct it specifically to the young people uh, among us. Because after all, this passage is about a 12-year-old. If you're a young person, pursue godly wisdom, godly maturity now, not later. Jesus, in our passage, was not even youth group age yet. And his teachers felt like they needed to go back to seminary. Jesus was unashamedly the Bible guy. And Jesus was not rubbing spiritual knowledge in people's faces. He was wise. And wisdom is a treasure. And it only comes from knowing God and His Word. If you know the Bible and you apply the Bible to your life, 
you are going to be wise. You're going to grow in wisdom. Now, if you know the Bible and you don't apply it, then you're a hypocrite. And you should repent and find grace in the Lord. But if you know the Bible and yet you fall and repent and believe and try again, then you're a Christian. Young people, wise is infinitely better than cool. Wisdom gives you life. Cool can deceive you. You can be cool all the way to hell. And this is a problem that doesn't stop when you leave your teens. Every adult has seen another one obsessed with their reputation. And every adult, all of us, recognize the temptation to live for the approval of man, as Paul calls it in Galatians 1.10. For all of us, our family and friends need us wise so much more than they need cool. Cool serves you, wise serves you and everyone else around you. If you're wise, people come to you with their problems and you can give them what the Bible says and you can pray for them and you can have joy watching the Spirit change them. It's awesome. Brothers and sisters, don't we need to grow in wisdom? How do we do that? We turn from the dust of the world to the, from the sinking sand of the world to the solid rock of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look to Him. See Him for who He is and marvel at Him. Let us give ourselves to His Word so that He might correct false ideas that we have of Him. So that we might delight when we find something new. When we come more and more out of ignorance into His joyful light. Friends, let us join Mary and Joseph and all who heard Him on this day that we read of. Let us be astonished by Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that You, our God, sent the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life, to take on true humanity, to grow up to accomplish righteousness with every one of His actions, and to go to the cross, to die in our place, to go to the grave, and then to rise on the third day in a glorified body, presenting Himself to hundreds so the people would see that the Son of God really died and really rose. We can really be saved. And He ascended and is seated at Your right hand even now, interceding for us. Lord, would You help us to grow in our love for Him. Help us as we continue to worship You this evening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.